Welcome to the Indian Science Show. I'm Turtle. Annie isn't here today because she's traveling to greet a new baby into her family. So I'll be hosting the show solo this time around, and the topic of today's episode is Indigenous women, especially Indigenous women scientists. And I couldn't ask for a better guest to have on the show to explore this topic with than my mom, Judy Gobert. She's the first Indigenous woman scientist that I ever met, and she's also super smart, she's kind, she's funny, but like most Native grandmas I've known, she can also get pretty dang ornery at times too. She's done PhD research in so many awesome projects, from helping tribal colleges and universities get their math and science programs up and running, to researching the AIDS virus and fighting against biocolonialism. In this episode, we talk about all of this and more. She's been fighting the fight for decades and has a lot to share, so I hope you enjoy this interview. It's a bit of a long one, so strap in and get some tea or something, and thanks for tuning in to the Indian Science Show. But before we jump in, I just wanted to read this review that we got from Keed Chaff. They gave us five stars, and Keed Chaff said, A thought-provoking launch episode of a promising new podcast about ways of knowing and native science in the modern world. End quote. I want to send a big thank you to Keed Chaff for the five-star rating as well as the review. And if you ever have any comments or suggestions, go ahead and feel free to do that. Exactly. Just leave us a review. Maybe give us stars if it sucked. Give us however many stars you feel like giving us, but we hope you give us five. And we'll be sure to try and integrate whatever suggestions you do have into the content of the show. Go ahead and relax, sit back, and enjoy the interview. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us. Today, we have a special guest on, and I couldn't be more grateful because of everything she does and continues to do for my family and the community. Thanks for coming on the show, Mom. Would you like to introduce yourself and go ahead and just tell the listeners a little bit about your background and where you're coming from? Sure. Um, my name is Judy Gobert. My mom was Rita Gobert and Thomas McDonald. And my grandma and grandpa were Irvin and Josephine Gobert um, from Two Medicine River. My grandma was from Fort Belknap. And um, I was raised uh, Pekani. And then later, once I met my dad, um, then I started learning Salish ways. And I have three children. Uh, my oldest daughter, Eskaji, my son, Luja, who's the host of the show, and my youngest daughter, Ijojari, and a whole bunch of grandkids, my yayas. Um, seven of them are living with us, and two of them are in Oklahoma. And when I was, um, when I was in graduate school, I kept getting asked, people would ask, or an old person asked me one time, what do you, they were laughing because I was still in school and teasing me about it. And he said, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, a good grandma, because I had a good grandma. So I hope that I can be a good yaya to my grandkids. Hmm. Cool. Well, thank you. And I'm really excited to have you on today because... I think it's really important for people to hear your story as a mother and as a woman and a scientist and especially as an indigenous woman and an indigenous scientist. 
And so to maybe just to begin, would you like to share a little bit about where your love for science first began? Well, it wasn't in grade school or high school or any of that. Actually, my love for science came out of my love for math. Math was the only subject on all the reservation schools that I went to that the teacher's bias couldn't enter into my grade. Math was either right or wrong, and um, no matter what they tried to do, saying that I didn't show my work or didn't do it right, it was still right or wrong. You know, and so math never let me down. It wasn't um, subjective like other subjects were. Yeah. And so, um, and growing up on reservations all over the Northwest, there was a lot of that. And especially when I got into high school um, in in Yakima, Washington, uh, I had some really good math teachers, um, but there were a lot of people vying for that, you know, top dog position in school and mostly white boys in math. And so trying to, um, I guess, put me in my place um, or what they thought my place was, um, people made fun of smart girls who knew math. And Mm. um, one thing about me, I guess that must come from my dad, I think, um, or from my ancestors, is that when people say you can't do something or tell me, no, you can't do that or you're not good enough, or then it's like I go out of my way to prove them wrong. <laughs> hmm. So, um, and my stepdad was a prime motivator. He used to tell me that I was a dirty, stupid Indian and I was never going to amount to anything. I was going to be on welfare and barefoot and pregnant and, you know, on and on and on. So, um, so yeah, he was a prime motivator and, and I'm grateful to him. I'm grateful that, um, uh, he provided, um, a strength that I probably never would have had, um, to be able to fight against the systems of education to get through to where I did. So that's my love of math. Um, my, my love of math led me to science because I couldn't figure out if I, if I knew then what mathematicians did, I would have been a mathematician, to be hmm. honest. But because I didn't, um, all I could see as a future was to be a, a math teacher and I never wanted to be a teacher. And, uh, uh, which is strange because I do a lot of that now. You know, I grew into being a teacher. Hmm. Um, so I took a lot of science because there was a lot of math in science. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so that was where, and I used to take uh, math classes. I probably have enough undergraduate credits to actually have a math degree. I, I took all kinds of, I probably have three years of statistics and, and, um, a, a lot of higher math that graduate students used to take just to boost my GPA. <laughs> mm. Why do you think, or what do you think you would have done if you did take that route 
I guess, what kind of mathematician would you have wanted to be? I don't know. The opportunities for mathematicians are so wide. I had no idea, no clue, um, the importance of math for all kinds of efforts. And I think about working for NASA, you know, all of the, all of the really, um, exploratory, wonderful science that NASA scientists get to do is based on a lot of math. And, you know, um, I can imagine myself very easily. And I think that's why I like NASA engineers and scientists is because they're trained by the very, by the, their very agency to look beyond the stars. They have a hundred year plan. What agency do you, other agency do you know that has a 100 year plan? And I was actually invited to be part of that, developing that 100 year plan. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. I, that would be really cool if uh, all the agencies did that, all the different federal agencies. Wow. So how do you think that happened? Why do you think you didn't take that path? Well, like I said, I had a limited vision of what mathematicians do. And mm -hmm. so I didn't see a future in math, but I did see a future of math in science. So the pathway way that I took started off when my husband, Eskaji's dad, was killed. And I, um, I was working for the Seminole Nation in their, uh, bingo bingo hall, but I knew that I needed to support a child now, so I started back to school, and I didn't know what I was going to take, but there was an MLT program, a medical lab technology program, and so I took that program. I started in that program, and I did really well, and at the time, I was I was not doing well, um, I guess, emotionally, and I wasn't very healthy. I was doing a lot of drinking and um, not showing up to classes. And I still was getting A's. I'd show up on Friday to take the test in math <laughs> mm. <laughs> and get an A. And I did the same thing in chemistry. And the chemistry teacher was totally frustrated with me and told the rest of the class, nobody in here is like Judy Gobert who could just show up and take the test. None of the rest of you can do that. <laughs> I don't know any of you who has the capabilities to do that. So chemistry became really important to me because of him, you know, because of his recognition of my intellect, that I really didn't need to be in class, that even though, you know, the reasons for me not being there were not valid, that I, that he validated my intellectual capacity. So I, that's when I became in love, infatuated with chemistry. And then learning about the chemistry in the body through the MLT program was a, was mm. a further love. And so like we were doing tests, you know, we were doing all kinds of learning how to do all kinds of tests to identify disease, you know, to figure out what was wrong with people's, with what was going on with people. Well, and then I started to work in a hospital lab, and I used to have this doctor. I did all the morning labs, and, you know, I was on the 6 to 2 shift, and I had this doctor come in every morning to gather his patients' results, and he'd quiz me. 
And he'd say, well, this, you know, they're, you know, the calcium levels are this high and their potassium is this and there's this blood work. And what do you think? And so I, so I would tell him, you know, and, you know, being deferential, he was a doctor, you know, and, and then finally, after about a month of that, it was like, he's having me diagnose his patients. And, and so the next time he came in, I got mad because I sure as heck wasn't getting paid as much as he was. And, um, I was doing part of his job for him. And he came in one morning and I was, I was in a, in a tizzy. We had, had a three car pileup and there was a couple of kids. And so there was a lot of, a lot of trauma at that morning and I didn't have time to diagnose his patients. And I basically said that to him. It's a wonder he didn't have me written up. He never did, but I think he was embarrassed enough, um, by what he was doing to not have me written up because I told him, doctor, you pay me as much as I, as you're getting paid and I'll diagnose your patient, patients for you. <laughs> mm. And he left, but, um, yeah. and then I thought, oh, there goes my job, <laughs> but it never happened. And then, um, we moved back to Oklahoma. I mean, back to Montana, and I started at SKC. Um, I wanted to go to the University of Montana and get my MT, which is a four-year medical technology degree. Um, but I thought, well, I'll work at SKC and get all the general ed requirements out of the way. And I lost almost all the credits from Oklahoma in the transition. And then when I transferred to the university, I lost almost all of my SKC credits mm, because... Dang. and why is that? Because of the... Um, is it the tri uh, trimester system? Or the, yeah, the yeah. trimester system. Yeah, Annie and I talked about that on a previous episode. Yeah, it's... Yeah. So in the in the meantime, I was sort of becoming active in other kinds of things. Pat Hurley had me on the board that initially set up the envir environmental science program at SKC. She was really trying hard to get me into environmental science. And, um, uh, but I had already had my mind wrapped around the chemistry of the body and the chemistry of humans hmm. and the biochemistry and the, and the, um, the bacteria so it was like I was headed towards looking at smaller and smaller things and not the big picture yeah. <laughs> of things. So. That's so crazy because I ended up being almost exactly the opposite <laughs> yeah. where I didn't really get into the biochemistry or physiology, human physiology, till I guess my 20s. Yeah, and so I transferred to the university I drove back and forth. I had my three kids and then, uh, I was married at that time to your dad and, um, he wasn't working. He had worked in the oil field in Oklahoma and, and, um, pretty much refused to take anything less than what the oil field paid. And there's no oil field in this valley. So, <laughs> but we drove back and forth, uh, to Missoula or I drove back and forth every day to Missoula and, and I was freaked out because in my physics class I thought I was getting you know I thought I was failing it but I didn't realize that there was eight sections of physics and 
you know, a total of like 400 students or something, and we were graded on a curve. And when I went to see the instructor about halfway through, pretty sure that I was going to have to drop the class, and it was a requirement, um, he started looking, he started at the D's and the F's looking for my name, <laughs> and he got to the A's <laughs> before uh, he found my name. <laughs> huh, so everyone else was doing even worse than you were. Huh? Yeah, and he was, he was just shocked, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Huh. But and you I, thought you were doing, and I thought failing. I was. Yeah, I thought yeah. I was at. I thought it, I had a D. You know, I was sure I had a D by my scores. Hmm. Yeah, but everybody told me later on that physics. There's several classes that are like that. Physics is one of them. That's a weed out class. You know, everybody has to have it. You know, for the sciences, and they try to weed out people with that class, and which I I thought was criminal. You know, and this is where my love for good, good instruction and good teaching came in because I thought, is it, I thought that it was really backwards. I mean, if you're an instructor, don't you want your students to understand? I feel like I want to go and take physics all over again, a whole year of physics just so I can understand because I felt like I didn't understand. Mm, and it's physics. so fascinating too, physics. Right? I know. It's like the basis of a, of a lot of science. Yeah. So I felt like I got ripped off. So I, I did the MT and was raising my kids. My and my husband got a divorce and that was difficult. So in my senior year, I was in the middle of a divorce. Um, I was, I don't know. I was, uh, started an ACES chapter there, started one at Two Eagle River School. Started one at, um, uh, at the high school in, in Missoula. And we had, um, I was president of Kyo and had to set that aside because I had too many, too many things on my plate. Wrote a couple of grants, wrote for the university, worked with, um, professor in the, in the, um, in pharmacy school. And Daryl and I wrote the grant for the pharmacy, the pre-pharmacy program that's still running today. So I, I really love seeing them, you know, advertising and recruiting Indian students to go into the pre-pharmacy program. Cause hmm. I think Daryl, it's still going. We did it, you yeah. know, so. Is that the, at the University of Montana? Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, so I, I got my MT and my, and there were two, I had two bachelor's degrees and, um, one in microbiology and one in medical technology. And that summer I, I had applied to medical schools. I think I applied to seven medical schools and the one I wanted to go to was at UW and I got, I got accepted to that one. So the rest of them, I just didn't pay any attention to after that, but I wanted to go to UW because here we, here we are, I'm at a crossroads in science, right? And there's, what do you do if you're an Indian woman in science? Back then, back in my day, you went to medical school, right? That's the only scientists that were visible at that time were in medical school. 
you know. So there mm. weren't any any uh, native indigenous women doing science in any other field at that time. So, um, so yeah, Aces, um, Aces, um, was very important at this early stage in my career, um, and giving me a sober place, you know, a, a family feeling where a bunch of Indians were, who are scientists were doing science and making a living at it. And they were also, um, uh, practicing their culture and their spirituality. So ACES was really important to me at that point in time. And then, um, I started a fight with ACES because it seemed like it was really heavy on engineering and there weren't any of the other scientific fields in there because I was looking for scholarships. I was looking for opportunities and the only thing I found was for engineers. And so I went to the board, raised heck with the board of directors, mm. and shout out to Jamie Pingham when he, he was chair of the board at the time. And, and, uh, he listened to me and they cool. started, they started recruiting, um, from NIH and NSF and NASA folks to bring them to the, to the career fair, you know, to show Indians. I said, cause this is a problem. You know, we don't know what we can do until we're, we're shown the opportunities, you know, what's out there. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I totally agree. So they had a lot of other, they started bringing in a lot of other, um, science, um, enterprises to recruit. And then it was like, so where are the tribal colleges? <laughs> How come there's no tribal colleges here? Why are there no tribal, tribal entities why are there no tribes here recruiting their own scientists to work on their own problems so those are the questions that i started coming up with you know early in my sorry early in my in my graduate program when i started graduate school my youngest daughter was nine months old and um I had all, of, I had a whole bunch of fellowships and scholarships and things. So I actually made more money going to graduate school than I would have going to work. And I worked that summer. Um, I was headed to graduate school, but there was a research program and I worked that summer in this research lab studying ribosomes and found that I did not want to go to medical school. This was it. Research was it. You know, just the whole, um, fluidity of research, the whole idea of searching out what's not known, of solving the next big problem, you know, searching out solutions, you know, and, and, um, digging deeper into the knowledge of, of a field. And it was like, that's it. This is it. So I called the University of Washington and said, thank you, but no thank you. I applied to graduate school. And then I started looking out, looking around at the research that was going on at the university. And there was a new researcher on campus and his name was Dr. Thomas North. And he was reach research. He was doing AIDS research. And not only that, you know, as a, as an indigenous woman, 
um, people look at you in a certain way, or even if you're indigenous, and they make assumptions about your capabilities and what you can and can't do. I had a, I don't know, it was a 400 level biochem course. And he was, and the reason I took it was because of him. He was, a, he was the instructor. So I had been in enough lab, science labs before and the, the guy who ran the, you know, the supplies for all of the science lab, him and I were good friends and, and I knew I didn't need to show up at that first, that first lab because it was just a intro thing. And, um, so I went, I came early for the next lab and went to see the guy, the supply guy. And so he said, Oh yeah, no problem, Judy. I'll get you all set up. So I was in the science lab, the biochem lab, and I was getting all of, you know, checking in and getting, making sure all my equipment was there and then going through. And he had the syllabus. So I was reading through the syllabus and all of that good stuff. Well, Tom North comes walking in. <laughs> and he says, he didn't know me, and but he looked at me and made an assumption, and he said, are you in the right place? Oh, interesting. And, yeah, and he said, you do know that this is a 400-level biochem course, hmm. and you hmm. have to have, you know, the prerequisites are this chemistry and this chemistry and this chemistry, and he said, yeah, I know. <laughs> and so it, it was so interesting that he became my hero. Yeah. You know, and and um, I almost didn't join his lab, but I thought, okay, you have a year to like give this guy a chance, right? So, and he was awesome. Once he figured out that, again, that I had the intellectual capability to do this stuff, then he was, you know, and I told him that I wanted to work in his lab. By then, he had apologized for what, you know, um, not for assumptions that he'd made. And we were good friends. And not only that, there was like a final that was like gave me a taste of graduate school. It was like the final in the class was there's three questions to be answered. None of them have answers currently. How would you find, how would you approach this as a research question? And man, it was like, it was awesome. I loved it. And I, I, um, turned it in. And when I got it back, he actually wouldn't give it back. He made me come to his office and I went to his office and he said, you know, he said, I would fund all three of these. He said, that's how well thought out it is. And so it was like, yeah. So, so I, he, he, um, <clears throat> excuse me. He agreed to take me on as a graduate student. And it was interesting because every female graduate student in biochem or micro was in his lab. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> And it was, it was awesome. We, and they just happened to be some of the best graduate students as well. <clears throat> so, um, so that's how I got into graduate school. And then when I got in there, I didn't know there's this whole dumb Indian thing that I've been fighting my whole life. First, it started off with my stepdad, Kenny Jones, by the way. Um, I just want to 
give him a shout out and I want everybody to know uh everybody I'm I'm like that whole me too thing I've been doing that for oh probably 40 years Kenny Jones is my abuser um so uh everybody who knows him everybody who's related to him you know beware don't leave your children boys or girls alone with him um so um yeah that came from <clears throat> that whole not trying not to be a dumb Indian really made me be a dumb Indian sometimes. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, crazy how that works. I know, because I wouldn't ask questions because I didn't want anybody. You know, I had no clue the difference between a master's, an MS, and a PhD. I had no idea what they were. Hmm. And so Tom North put me into a PhD program. And um, so I was, I didn't even get a master's. I was in a PhD program and I had no clue that I was, you know, well, I had a big dumb Indian. I didn't know. And then when I found out the difference and I was freaking out, you know, and he's like, listen, you know, he was like trying to calm me down. Listen, if it's easier to, uh, scale down a PhD program into ma- a master's, than it is to scale up from a master's into a PhD. And you'll be done faster. Hmm. <laughs> that was the key, I think. I'll be done faster. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> and he said, and you have the capability to do a PhD. So once again, um, it was like somebody... And see, that that's the, the duality of being coming from an abusive home and from an abusive situation is that you know you're smart you you innately know that you have the intellectual capabilities but there's always in the back of your mind there's always that voice saying you can't do it you know you're too dumb you don't know and so then at key points along my career there's always been somebody there and i really truly believe creator brings them into my life to say, you can do this, you know, not only can you do this, but, you know, you're one of the best scientists, you're going to be one of the best scientists, you know, Hmm. so yeah, God bless you, Tom North, you know, he's passed away, he's gone, Um, but yeah, he was, and he gave me an opportunity, he gave me a chance, and we were dreaming big we were going to build an AIDS research center and I was going to be um, one of the researchers in his AIDS research center there it in the University of Montana mm-hmm. <clears throat> and that caused a whole ruckus holy cow don't get into politics if you're in a in a science program and in, in a graduate program do not get into the politics do not be on the any of the president's boards for academic excellence do not do reviews for for uh uh faculty don't get don't get on those committees to do faculty reviews don't get on faculty search committees you know keep your head down get the piece of paper get out of there and then you'll have the power to actually be able to to change the system when you're in the system they will tear you up 
they will chew you out, chew you up. And especially if you're an indigenous person or especially if you're an indigenous woman, because all of these, and, and I was in an all white, um, male department and then they use your being indigenous and being a woman against you. Not that I've published five papers and I've gotten all these grants and I've presented at all these international conferences. No, that's not the reason that I got all these opportunities. I got it because it was, uh, because I was an Indian woman. And it's like, well, that's just, for me, that was just the icing on the cake. It's the first time being an Indian woman actually worked in my favor. So it was, um, that was a difficult time. Um, but the AIDS research, the research was awesome. It was incredible. And working with the people that I did, I was, I was blessed to be able to work with the, the, the women and men that were in Tom Norris lab. And we went to international conferences. We presented at international conferences. And that's when my second, um, love came into being was those Japanese researchers and Chinese researchers and other researchers would hunt me down. I was the only Indian at any of those conferences. And they would track me down and hound me and everybody expected me to speak for all indigenous, you know, all indigenous people at these conferences and asking me questions. And I couldn't get a break. They would call my room. They would show up at my room. And it was like, there were no natives out there doing, doing, um, AIDS research. No natives in biochemistry. No natives doing microbiology. And especially indigenous women. And I started like sinking myself into more and more into the ACEs. You know, I saw them as a way to increase the numbers of not only just native people, but indigenous women, you know, in science. And, um, and now I am so proud to say that I was in charge of a program at SKC that our goal was to double the number of uh, Native Americans in a, in a nine-state area at, in graduating with uh, bachelor's degrees. And we managed to do that. It was within five years. We did it in four. And then we also tripled the numbers of indigenous people getting uh, masters and PhDs in science in that same time frame. So, um, so yeah, I made an impact on indigenous education for native people in sciences. And that was the most, uh, um, fulfilling job in my life. And I was driven. I feel like I was driven. Um, because it was like, it became, I became kind of consumed with it, you know, and you can, you can attest to that. I spent a lot of time traveling on the road, but as the opportunities that I was giving to other people, um, other indigenous students around the, or in Indian country with tribal colleges and the universities that I was working for, 
you got to go to some pretty nice field trips. <laughs> Remember? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I can really relate to the way you described how you kind of got into science where it wasn't really so much the math, but the math is when I began to fall in love with the math and realize how useful it is and how reflective it is of the universe, how there's always a kind of a different path you can take, but there's a, almost always this kind of this truth that underlies everything that we're going after. We just go after it in different ways. And for me, I know that you are a huge part of my love for science and how I ended up getting into science. And this is something that I've talked about quite a bit over the last year in my gr graduate program as we've been exploring all these different topics of knowledge integration and traditional systems of knowing and all this other kind of stuff that we've been looking at to try and understand how we actually can bring different ways of knowing together to create new systems to address really complex issues like climate change. And one of the main themes that seem to really keep coming up is how do you, we bring two worldviews together? And that always reminded me of something you said ever since I can remember that. And I remember you even, you even use these, this exact phrase that science and religion aren't mutually exclusive that, and I didn't know what mutually exclusive meant when I was a kid, but as I got older, it definitely made more and more sense. And in this program, it, it really came up. And that was one of the main things that seemed to be what kept people from be it was almost like people didn't quite have the courage to step outside that comfort zone of their own worldview and explore another worldview with the confidence to to actually speak on it and it seemed like it it takes time you got to you have to experience it over time and i want to ask how do you think that that initial love for math and some of those challenges that you talked about, how do you think those played into the work you ended up doing? And how do you think some of your inspirations over the years, how do you think that all came together to put you on the path that you ended up on? Well, I think that <clears throat> I really honestly believe that this was a creator-led endeavor. You know, um, whenever, especially when I got sober and clean and I started going to, you know, to, um, the lodge and to the sweat lodge and, um, and when I was in the, um, bundle openings and, and then when I was actually doing the research, there were problems. Of course, when you're doing research, you run into a brick wall sometimes. And with one of ours, we did, did a lot of uh, tissue culture. We had a cell line that we infected with virus, and sometimes those cells would get in, would get contaminated with bacteria. And we went in our lab. We went through a horrible time where everybody's cell lines were infected with bacteria, and it, it, you have to trash everything and start all over. So. 
Well, late one night I came in and I brought in, um, I brought him some sage and I brought my shell and my eagle wing fan and I was smudging all of our cell lines and I was nice. smudging everything in, in the, in the lab and, uh, Tom caught me <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, what are you doing? And I said, shh. I'm praying. Hmm. He's like, oh, okay. And he just stood there and he, you know, crossed his hands in front of him and put his head down. And I said, and so, and let me finish. And then um, after I was done, he said, is that it? And I said, yep. He said, what are you, what are you praying for? I said, for our cell lines. And he just kind of like giggled. Mm. <laughs> and he said, okay. He said, have a good night. And he left. And we didn't have any problem with our cell lines after that. Wow. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so then the next time we had the sim- a similar situation where our cell lines were infected, he came in and he whispered, he leans over and he whispers to me, I'm at, sitting at my desk and he said, I think it's time to, to, um, Smudge <laughs> to uh, smudge the cells again, hmm. <laughs> and I said, "Okay." So I did, and he was there. Nice. He wanted to be there, so he started getting his smudge on. Then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> cool. And then um, uh, people would call me from back home, and they'd say, "We're having, you know, this kind of ceremony, that kind of ceremony. Can you come?" And you know, um, I was taught when you get the call you go so i'd load up the kids and we'd go and uh for whatever ceremony then we'd come back and i'd always make arrangements to somebody to take care of my my cells and tom told me one time he said we were having a lab meeting and he said i know it's a cultural thing and he said "I'm, i'm not complaining he said but i just want to point out that most people when they when they take off and go somewhere and do something they ask permission (laughs) and he said and i said oh okay i said i said well i don't and he said yeah i know i know (laughs) and he was okay with it but i pointed out to him one of the things i pointed out and you can i still have my lab notebooks i was there on thanksgiving i was there on christmas all of those christian holidays that everybody sell everybody else celebrated and took time off and and did things you know easter all of those were i was working and i didn't think and they nobody ever had to take time off or ask permission to participate in those christian um spiritual holidays so i didn't feel the need to ask permission to practice my spirituality. Yeah, that makes sense. So, so that, um, and I was still involved, really involved in ACES and really involved. I became really political at the university and writing grants and being part of the, um, part of that but working with skc and i kind of forgot your question oh okay well let let me see if i can rephrase it a little bit what so i I know that you've you've worked done a lot of your main phd research was in aids 
looking at the AIDS virus, and you've done a lot of work with tribal colleges and universities, as well as some activism with biocolonialism and other things. And I'm, I guess what I'm curious about is how do you think your initial passion for science and math, how do you think that played a role in the path that you took with the work that you did end up doing? Ah, okay. Yeah, I think, I definitely think that creator had a huge role in it because every time when I felt lost or when I didn't know which way to turn or which way to go, I'd go to the sweat lodge and I'd just turn it over, over to creator. And he would always show me, creator would always show me uh, he or she or it or, you know, however you want to define it in your own mind, this pre powerful presence um, would show me the way, you know, show me which way I needed to go. And it even got to people were, I, it was kind of annoying because um, everybody was, you know, at that point in my career, I was like pretty well known because I was the only indigenous woman scientist working on a biochemistry PhD in in the US and I think around the world too. So I was getting all this recognition, um, which brought its own kind of um I guess uh troubles. But people people who interviewed me for I've been in all different kinds of magazines and newspaper articles and when they would interview me they would say, How can you be Indian and be a scientist? That was As if a, that's a paradox. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And it was like, and, and, I, and I, I apologize to the listeners because I talk with my hands. And so earlier I was talking a lot with my hands and I was hitting, bumping the microphone. And so if you hear that oh, yeah. noise, that's why. Somebody Technical even asked me. Yeah. Somebody even asked me one time, how do you, how do we make you stop talking? And I said, tie up my hands. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hmm. but but the, so then when when i work when i was working on my research it was amazing to think of the power and the intellect and of this creation this powerful creative energy that could take these little tiny cells and they would be so complex and they would have all of the you know how, and so when how how can you not believe in creator how can you not believe in a in a higher power or a god or creation how can you not when you can see the intellectual capacity that had to go into the creation of of from single-celled beings up to a human being you know and all of the the beauty of life in between how can you not believe in that yeah, I think about that a lot when I reflect on the theory of evolution and just how crazy that really is. Because if you just think about it, kind of from an outside perspective, it's so much more fantastic of a story than creationism, in my opinion, anyway. It it seems more plausible that some kind of an, an omnipotent being or super powerful being of some kind came down and just created everything 
than it does just like the insanely vast amount of time that goes into some of these ideas and the creation of the universe and just like you said how complex everything really is but the more we understand it the more we see that it's following like a set of guidelines it seems like that's but those guidelines break down depending on kind of how you're looking at it and i love that quantum physics is revealing a lot of our initial perceptions about the universe were definitely not quite what they seem to be. And yet within our creation stories and within the stories of within our cosmology, our indigenous cosmology, you find all of those things. Yeah. And I, I was really uh, the most amazing meeting that I've ever been was with uh, some higher I can't tell you their names, um, cause I don't know. They might kill me. No, I'm not, I'm kidding. But there are some higher ups within NASA and I initiated a meeting with them and with some elders. And the most amazing thing happened. They were talking about the indigenous cosmology and one of them were like, well, they were asking the scientists, the NASA scientists, well, what do you want to know? What are your, um, what is the main thing that NASA wants to know? And the, the scientists said, well, we want to know how to, uh, travel in, in time. We want to know how to do time travel. And they said, you could have come to us and we would have helped you with that. We know how to do that. And then, so there were questions like that, that, those deeply philosophical questions. Yes, there is time travel. Yes, there is space travel. Yes, you know, those things, those questions have already been answered, and they're within our indigenous knowledge system. And sci and the scientists of, of, of today are just now and and I really hate this that people think that somehow that it, they're validating our science. We've known these things for thousands of years and now because white people discover them, here we go with that whole discover thing. And just because we don't write them up in scientific papers and put it into scientific literature doesn't mean that our knowledge isn't valid because when they come out with with it and they say oh well i guess you guys were right all along you know and then people say yeah they validated our science it's like no they didn't hmm. our science was valid already yeah <laughs> they just did not listen to us <laughs> yeah i'm glad you bring that up that's a really 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 important topic to address i feel on a lot of different levels, but it definitely, especially within science, that I think that is at the basis of kind of a lot of the on the ground application of the power dynamic of colonialism in indigenous communities is how we use words and how those words translate into the perceptions that we have about certain things. And that word validate is I, I really agree with you. It's it doesn't need validation be, because I mean then you ask like what is valid? Who actually validates what? And that's that's interesting because it, it gets me thinking about something I heard from this anthropologist. Uh, uh, I think uh, he's an archaeologist in his training, and he's um, works for the 
DEC, the department, what is that? The Department of Energy Commission? Uh, I, I, I might have that wrong. I'll, I'll maybe correct that on the show notes or something. But anyways, what he said, and this gave me a lot of hope because he's not native or anything and he's working directly with the tribes over there on a lot of consultation issues and other things. And he says that he like, he prefers the term, uh, recognize. Hmm. Because it's not claiming ownership over it. It's not saying that, hey, we're the first ones to know this kind of stuff. And now we're validating what you didn't know completely because our science is better. That's kind of some of the underlying connotation. And and I really like that. And I, I kind of stole it from him. And I've been using that lately that Western science is recognizing some of these things that indigenous peoples have known for thousands of years, maybe even tens of thousands. Some of these really principle fundamental ideas that kind of underlie a lot of what we do in our everyday life but um i what i what i was saying before was catching up and that's not really that politically correct i mean a lot of scientists don't want to think they're catching up to indigenous science so yeah they have a hard time with that and then you know the thing that um i guess this is where the activists work started coming in uh there was a researcher who was a researcher who did strawberry research out of the university of montana and he was part of this larger research study that was looking at the at the ecosystem of of um uh, the rocky mountains and then all of a sudden he was putting through uh, I was working at SKC and he requested, uh, to work with, to gather DNA from the tribes here. And so somebody at the tribe sent this request over to me and I'm like, what the heck? I, and I knew him and I knew what his research was about and I started digging around and they had included indigenous people within the ecosystem study. But the way that they included them was that we were disappearing as races, which is totally a bogus scientific concept. I mean, every scientist on the earth knows that there is no such thing as race. So it's a, it's a political construct. It has nothing to do with science. But he said we were disappearing. The, the premise was that uh, we were disappearing and our, we were, um, intermarrying so much that there were not going to be any pure indigenous people of Montana. So he wanted to collect all our DNA. And I was like, Hmm. I was furious. And then I found out, I started doing some digging, and I found out there was an international movement to do this. It was not just national. And it was the, uh, uh, the, the, and it was, to collect the DNA of 600, I think it was 643 indigenous peoples around the world, uh, to collect our DNA, not to help the people survive, because they said we were on the brink of, of not being pure bloods anymore. Here we go with that whole pure blood thing again. And that, um, our DNA would be lost forever unless they, saved us, but they only wanted to save our DNA. They wanted to save our DNA, immortalize it in cell line, put it on, 
put it in a big storage system and they would sell it to researchers around the world who wanted to study our DNA. Hmm. There's no sovereignty issues with that, right? (laughs) (laughs) I thought they were totally nuts, uh, totally bananas. It was like, we are not, you know, this whole purebred thing, this whole, you know, that is totally against, you know, we we have a whole bunch of colonial kind of thought process involved in that whole, just that whole statement of collecting indigenous DNA. So um, uh, a friend of mine, Velda Shelby, said, I know, I know a woman down in Nevada. She's Paiute and she's been working on something similar. You guys should talk. She gave me her number. I called her and that's how I met Deb Harry. And uh, not Blondie Deb Harry, Dr. Deborah Harry, <laughs> mm. who's a new move from, uh, from uh, Nevada. And um, she had a meeting, she had a conference, and that's when I found out the full horror, the full-scale horror of what these people were doing. And that's when I went to council, Mickey Pablo was the chair, and I said, this is what's happening. You need to tell this Yehu down at the University of Montana no. And then we worked to develop a, uh, I worked with, we put to, he rapidly assembled a, a committee of people within the tribe to deal with uh, the DNA studies because they got three more in the time between this, the initial request. And so, and then he said, we need to tell other tribal leaders. So here I was, I had a full-time job, but there was this emerging scientific exploitation, the colonialism of our very DNA. And it was not just of human DNA, but it was also our plant, our medicinal plants. They were coming after our medicinal plants so that they could patent them and so that they would own, they would own, get this, own those plants. And they tried to patent the people of Papua New Guinea. Um, so there was a lot going on. And so Mickey, I went to a Montana-Wyoming tribal leaders meeting, presented to them. And then um, that's when uh, Alvin Windy Boy Jr. Um, and Mickey became my other bosses. Besides Joe McDonald. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's when I started. We put together a meeting here, here on this reservation uh, for tribal leaders and tribal elders to talk about these issues. We had researchers from all over the country, indigenous research who were fighting against this, come in and talk about what was happening. Um, and that's when my grandson, my oldest, my firstborn grandson was born was during that conference, and it was on Columbus Day of all times. It was, there were so many ironies. It was crazy. In between sessions, I was running out to the phone to call my call Eskaji down at Ada at the Ada Indian Hospital and telling her, come on, baby, breathe, breathe. And that's when, when um, my son, my grandson was born, was during that conference. And it was an amazing conference and it was an amazing battle and we had battle and that was now you guys got to remember this was before facebook right this was before we had a lot of the technology that's here now this was the day of listservs 
I don't know if you guys remember listservs. When people would have email listservs where oh, yeah. they it still would use just, them. It would just go out, you know, as a broadcast. And that's how we communicated and we fought with people, the people in India to protect their rice because American researchers were trying to claim that that um neem rice was their rice, that they discovered it because they isolated their the gen they did they did the DNA analysis and so they discovered it which would have it it neem rice came, comes from thousands of years of of you know natural genetics and selection that the people of india the indigenous people of india have practiced so we were able to stop that we were able to stop the uh they were trying to um uh, patent the genome of the people of Papua New Guinea. The people of Papua New Guinea have a unique genome. There's a, a virus called, another retrovirus called, uh, HTLV, which is human T lymphotrophic virus. And it's another RNA virus, a reverse transcriptase virus that is, um, is naturally found in their DNA. It doesn't cause them any harm. When it infects somebody else, this virus, you know, people who don't have, have it in their genome, they get sick. And it's a really prolonged, protracted sickness. So you had the United States of America and a biotech company trying to patent these human beings, patent their gene, which meant they would have owned these people. That's how insane it was. That's how utterly insane science out of control can get. And this is when the time when, um, you know, I was traveling to everywhere. We were, we would find out about, they were studying, they were trying to study indigenous people and we would gather up our, our scientists and our warriors and we, and our tribal leaders and, we would, uh, we showed up at a, at a meeting in Minneapolis. You should have seen those scientists. We were not invited. Then we were told we had to leave. And then tribal leaders walked in and there was about 10 of them and they all had their cowboy hats and their cowboy boots and walked up to the front. And here was this indigenous, this scientist meeting on researching indigenous people and indigenous people were not even invited. We would, crash their parties all the time. And Alvin Windy Boy was incredible. He gave an incredible talk about how utterly immoral what they were doing was. And that he was, you know, and it was like, it was like him and Mickey Pablo reminded me of the speeches of of Joseph and of Geronimo and of other, those old time leaders. And it was just incredible to watch these indigenous leaders take on the scientific community and they were with no fear there was no fear and it was it was it was awesome and um we stopped a lot of that science we stopped a lot of it from taking place we were um uh instrumental in helping uh the numu people get spirit caveman back um from the scientists we were instrumental well, we, in the beginning, we were in the forefront of the fight for, um, 
what they call Kennewick man, but what the people, his people call him the ancient one. We were instrumental in that. We were instrumental in helping the people and, um, the Great Lakes, uh, fight the patenting of wild rice. That's crazy. I mean, just that's totally a, a mind. You really have to be, a, you know, a mind bender to say, wild rice and patent even in the same sentence right Mm, yeah (laughs) so yeah it was an exciting time it was a tiring time and we lost some battles too and um and it was hard work and we didn't have the money that these big biotech companies had you know and uh we would go to un meetings and um and, and fight at the UN level. So there was a lot of, a lot of work that was, um, but it was really exciting because, uh, it was, it, it felt like we were like the it, it, fighting colonialism all over again, you know, fighting the colonization of our very bodies and of our plant, you know, our plant relatives. They're trying to patent, our medicinal plants all over the place. And it was just horrific, the things that they were doing. We were able to, we were able to stop a whole lot of the, a whole lot of the exploitation of our people. Hmm. Yeah, that's definitely an ongoing issue in indigenous communities around the globe fighting against that. And it, this is a huge illusion. I think a lot of settler populations and even indigenous communities have is that the colonial era is this past thing that it's over now but really it's an ongoing we're still in the colonial era hopefully it's the end of the colonial era and the the beginning of a new one and that's how i feel uh, as a scientist personally that's how i can contribute is to help shift that paradigm and it really seems like the major problem that that results in those science experiments or research projects that do so much damage and further just ingrain that colonialistic approach to life is the the morals and the ethics and that that worldview that's actually guiding the use of the science and the split in western science in western cultures there was that schism that happened in the church and then there was also the split between science and the church and that happened over hundreds and hundreds of years and it really didn't fully take place until the 20th century and in a lot of ways it still hasn't happened here in the united states so in my view it's a lot of the dysfunction that occurs and what why these projects happen in the first place is that that heart that guides the hand that's using those tools has been removed from science. And in some ways it's been beneficial because it allows the objectivity to reveal some of the things we've revealed. But I mean, is it really, is it necessary? I mean, is that cost really worth the benefit we've gotten from these different sciences that have come up over the years? And I think anthropology is a classic example of that and how that gave rise to the, I'm using air quotes, the, the science of, race race science back at the beginning of the 1900s and stuff and now we know that i mean back then it was like high science it was cutting edge science now we know that most of those concepts are completely 
false. The the those so-called biology biologic indicators of race are totally not useful at all for understanding people and human variation and all these other aspects of our evolution. So I think that's important to remember that that what we think is high science right now doesn't mean that we sh- it's good science. It doesn't mean it's that science that's guarded and or uh not guarded, sorry, but guided by that heart that you were touching on. Mm-hmm. And and I think that um a lot of that came about well actually it's been part of it for a while, but I think when they passed a law uh Congress did. It was during Reaganomics, I think. I can't remember the name of... I can't remember the date, the actual date of it. But what they basically said, this law basically said that science and... And it was from the Republicans. Okay, get this. Be, be sure to lay this squarely at the Republicans' door. It said that any public funding for science had to have a purpose, had to lead towards a product. So now we have the, now we have, you see what's happening in the world and the commodification of everything? That's happened with science now. And that's the reason I'm not in science. Because we had information about a drug that was being used early on in for AIDS for AIDS for AIDS patients we had very vital information that we needed to publish but we had an agreement with the drug company because they gave us all the drug so we couldn't publish that research and and the things that we were predicting came to pass and it was devastating for people with AIDS the other thing is we had a drug delivery system. We were working with another biotech firm, and we had a, a drug delivery system. They had a virus. We had the cell line. Um, we couldn't get the and, – and the virus encapsulated their drug, and it worked on, on virus-infected cells. We could show that. The problem was we couldn't get the, the their virion capsule to attach to our cell walls and for that drug to go across the channel into the cell. But it would have, if we could have done that, it would have specifically targeted AIDS infected cells and not the devastation of all cells being, you know, like they do with cancer with chemotherapy. Hmm. So it would have been yeah. a specific target. But, and there were some really great membrane biologists out there that could have helped us solve that problem but we couldn't talk about the research with anybody with any of our colleagues anybody because we had an agreement with this biotech company so that's when it was like you know science is screwed (laughs) in my mind you know it was like if this is all about money and not about saving lives then what are we doing That's when I saw the total immorality that money brought into the picture. Yeah, that's really, that's such a hard thing to see and deal with. And that's, I I would say that's definitely still a major problem in the, the pharmaceutical or biopharmaceutical industry is that they're using science without asking that 
critical question, like why? Why are we doing this? Should we do it in the first place? And that is just crazy. But I also have a lot of hope because we're actually addressing a lot of these issues head on in the program that I joined up uh, with just barely a year ago. And uh, I mean, you're very aware of it, but it's called the Sewing Synergy Program. And the whole idea is to integrate traditional ecological knowledge and scientific ecological knowledge. And at the very fundamental, basic level, to do that, it requires that we at least attempt to bring those two back together, the spirituality and the ethics back into science. And not just for the utilitarian or just the usefulness of it, but because it needs it. And a lot of scientists are beginning to wake up to this. And I don't know so much in like pharmaceuticals, but within the field of ecology, for sure. Almost every ecologist that I've met in my career has at least been open to these ideas. There's definitely the uh, ecologists that are in the more hard science realm and they, they're really strict about objectivity and that and these things. But I, I would say most scientists, especially social scientists, acknowledge that we can't exclude the bias out. We can't exclude our worldview totally. It's always going to be present at some point. And that's I think I think this is a really great note to kind of wrap the episode up on is how do you see women playing a role in some of these present issues and how in a lot of ways women have been excluded from that worldview for so long and from the construction and evolution of social systems in this dominant culture that has in a lot of ways colonized the whole planet. Uh, I'm curious how you see women playing a role in shifting this kind of this paradigm of excluding our spirituality out of science and how women can play a role in the changes that we might experience with that going down the road. Well, again, I think it's, um, there was an experiment, not it. Well, actually it was an experiment that, uh, IBM did a long time ago that drove their, um, business model. Of inclusion, hmm. and they included people from different cultures who spoke different languages, who came from different countries, in their um, their process. And what they found actually was that once you include people who think differently, who speak differently, who have a different thought process, a different pattern of um, evaluating and relaying and, and, um, analyzing whatever, whatever it is, whatever, you know, problem. The problem solving is quicker, more efficient, and you have many more options. There are many more solutions than when you have a group of scientists or, and they, it was scientists that they were working with who are all white male. Hmm. Yeah. You, you get, you get one solution 
And it's not often a really good solution. So <laughs> works for them, maybe. <laughs> so, and and that stuck in my head. And I, and actually, IBM was one of the one of the um, in, uh, businesses that used to have me come in and talk um, on their when they do their diversity um, diversity things within their in their organization. And so I. I'd travel out to places like New York and, and, um, and go out to different wherever they were and they talk and talk about science and being an indig an indigenous woman. So, um, so, and, and what I've found, okay, this is the other part of that. The other part of it is in researching my own ancestors' indigenous history and the history of indig indigenous women in this country and finding out that it was, if you take a look at those first papal or those first letters from the Jesuit priest in Florida that were sent back to the Pope and he outlined what had to happen to, they were, they were after several things. They were after the land, the gold, and uh, converts. Um, there was no gold, um, and the land was very fruitful, but guess what? The women had control of, of both the land and the converts. They decided how the land was, who, how, and when the land was planted, you know, because it's that deep connection that we as women have with the earth and with birth and with growing, you know, and then we had, the, our job was raising our children, men and women, to become good men and women and directing their, helping direct their pathway. Well, the priest, they wrote back to the, to the Pope and he said, you have to take away the power of the women. That was his number one on his list because they determine, you know, what the education of the children and what happens, the disposition of the land. And that was a deliberate, and that has been part of the colonization process from that day on, you know, from the religious institutions that they set up, the boarding schools that they set up, all of the rules and laws. If you take a look at most of our, most of our societies are, are matriarchal, matrilineal societies. There's a few, a few exceptions to that, but most of them are. So they stripped women of that power and they told men, you are now the ones who make the decisions. So they told men and they tried to, um, uh, indoctrinate them first to believing that, you know, it's a man's job. It's a man's job, right? That's all we heard was it's a man's job to do this. It's a man's job to do that. It's never, it's never been, but that's not how our cultures and our societies were. So they systematically, um, and, and, you know, set, set out to destroy that delicate balance that we have worked out in our cultures, uh, of, between men and women. And there were always exceptions to those boundaries. Those boundaries, they were not strict boundaries. They were fluid. There were warrior women, right? You know, there, and then plus there were not just two genders either, you know, and so those Christian churches and it was a deliberate process to divest us of the very essence of who we are as men and women and, and 
and not just the binary genders as well. You know, um, there were, we had LGBT in our communities forever, right? We have all of those stories and we're starting to embrace it. But back in the day, man, if you were, uh, uh, um, a gay man, a lesbian woman, um, it was, it was a dangerous proposition. People would beat you up on the reservations, right? And, uh, there was, it was really dangerous to be out. And so, so all of those things has divested us not only of our true selves as human beings, you know, basically our basic thing is that we're human beings and we're loving, caring human beings. And beyond that, you know, we had a place in our society for everybody. Everybody was included. It was inclusive society. We didn't ever throw anybody away because of who they, who they were. We found a place and we found a way that they could contribute to our community. So we've lost that process within, and now we have this larger, larger, uh, culture that is, has, has, has oppressed and and ripped away those basic human values that we once had and we think we have to operate that way we still think that we have to be like the white man in order to succeed and we don't and so we have exclusive societies we have exclusion rather than including everybody in the process and as a result we lose half of that intellectual capacity, half of that creative capacity, half of that human loving capacity that we are as human beings. So when we exclude people, that's what happens. And I think that women are now leading that forefront. I think women are leading us back. And I think what happened at Standing Rock was a big me too for all of indigenous women to see the women leading that process, leading that battle. And, um, all of us old activists are going, yes, <laughs> in the background, just cheering all of those women on, you know, and, uh, and seeing all of the young women come to the forefront to fight. You know, it's like, this is going to be, a battle for uh humanity and a battle for mother earth a battle for the mother of us all from the mothers and grandmothers of us all and within our communities within a lot of the indigenous communities men didn't men were there to protect the women as the and the women directed the battle and we need to go back to those ways. We need to recognize that women are not just housewives. Women don't just raise the children. Women, you know, it's, that's a white man's way of thinking. We need to get away from that. We need to get away from that, um, pigeonholing of people because I've been many things in my life. I've been many different women in my life. 
And I am still evolving and changing as I grow older. And why do we have to pigeonhole people and put them in one specific category, one specific place, and try to say that's who you are for the rest of your life? I think as we evolve and through our own issues, our own problems, our own lives, um, are, we change. And I think that women, um, because the number one, our number one um, role, the most deeply spiritual connection that we have as women is life. And we need to lead. Wow. Thank you for sharing all that. And I really, I know that getting more in touch with my own femininity is really what helped ground me in my masculinity and what helps me remember what it actually means to be a man and also what it means to be a human. And I definitely agree that to try and tell someone, especially to try and tell someone else who they are and that's what it's going to be forever, that I think that's just naive. And uh, there's definitely a perception among, dominantly among privileged white men that women are only here to fulfill a certain role uh, forever. And that, like you, you touched on it, being a housewife, being in the kitchen, there to raise children, only there as like baby-making machines instead of actual sexual beings in and of themselves that have different needs and different things that they require depending on what part of their life they're at, where, what kind of experiences they've had. And that's something I think we need to definitely honor more among each other both among men and especially among women. Now that the Me Too movement has risen, a lot of these things are being addressed, which is really cool. But I, of course, with a lot of this, there's a lot of that historical trauma and a lot of repressed anger that's being let out. And that can be really hurtful and really dysfunctional, no matter where it's coming from. So hopefully that people can manage that and work through all this and this is going to become something better that helps us evolve and empower ourselves as, as, as a people. And I'm really glad that you agreed to come on the show today, even though it's your son's podcast. <laughs> you could have definitely said, no, nah, no, nah, I don't feel like it. <laughs> so I'm, I'm grateful that you decided to come on and share all those stories that you just shared with us. Is there anything else that you want to add or I know we could I could ask you a, a million other questions about almost just this one topic but kind of in this realm of indigenous women and science is there anything else you want to add Yeah there's just there's one one thing that I want to add I think that um the most powerful message that was given to me from um, the indigenous Maori people, when we were in Wipchi in Hawaii, we were on a boat, stuck on a boat with each other, 
Um, they offered me a job. Um, they offered me the job of teaching uh, the math and sciences in their university. But they said part of the contract was in two years you have to be teaching it in the language, hmm. in our language. And I was blown away. And I still remember that day. And I was like the realization that these people were serious, man, dead serious. I would not only have to teach math and science, but I'd have to learn a lang new language. I would have to learn their language and help work with elders to develop new language and then teach totally in the language in two years. What a powerful statement. I came back from that trip uh, lit up. I, I had to turn it down because of my thinking and my inability to think that, you know, that I could do that. I didn't think I could do that. I didn't think that I had the capability to do that. But I came back to the tribal colleges and I said, this is what we need to be doing. And until we can talk about science in our own languages, I think we're always going to be fighting the same battles. You know, I think we're always going to be part of the colonial system. And I would like to be able to talk to an I mean, I, I got to, I mean, first it was like, I'd just like to see another indigenous face at these conferences. And then there was a lot of indigenous faces at the conferences. And now it's like, I'd like to be able to talk, you know, biochemistry in my language. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that'd be really cool. That's something that I know I really want to, being in this program really inspired me to learn more Pikani because... It's so crucial to understanding certain ideas and to being able to not just understand but live a certain worldview is to be able to be able to speak that language. Well, one of the things that all of my elders have said since I can remember asking questions is that you all the answers are here. Hmm. You just have to ask and you have to know how to ask. And I think you have to ask in your language. So I think the solutions to a lot of what, a lot of what's happening now, a lot of our problems of the past are in our languages. Hmm. Yeah. Cool. So to end on a note that Annie and I kind of, we've been talking about this, that we really want to ask the people that come on the show, because it's something that her and I are always going back and forth on and getting really deep in our conversations about is how do you be indigenous in the modern world? I mean, there's a lot of confusion about what traditional means and like, what is an indigenous person? But from your perspective, what would you say if you were to sit a young native person down, what would be your top three tips for being indigenous in the modern world, if it's even possible? Well, I think it's possible. And I think that people get um, culture and tradition um, mixed up. I mean, I think that um, they want, they want, there's like this whole um, revitalization effort. 
and there's this whole, um, but we have a lot of people who are hoarding knowledge of the, of, of our ancestors. You know, and we have a lot of people who won't share knowledge, the knowledge that they have. We have people who are wanting to preserve the culture and the language or preserve and put it. It's like having culture under glass, like a museum piece. To me, that's what I think of when they want talk about preserve. And it's like, our languages, our cultures are living, breathing things, and they will change. And if they don't change, then we die. How many indigenous groups are gone? How many ancient knowledges are gone? Because they were unwilling to change. Because they were unwilling to do things a different way. They were unwilling to migrate to a different mountain valley to hunt. They were unwilling to do what needed to be done to survive. And I think that that's one of those, one of those strengths of our cultures is that if we're here, if we're still here, we know how to survive and we've had to survive. And sometimes our survival techniques have not been the most healthy. So one of the things that I challenge all of you is those survival techniques that you or your people use or your tribes or your bands or or your if is it working are you surviving or are you thriving cuz our people would discard our ancestors if we were not thriving they would discard a practice for a better practice they wouldn't be stuck to one certain way of doing things. So um, that's what my challenge to all of you, to being indigenous in a modern world. Are you surviving or are you thriving? Hmm. That's a powerful message. Cool. Well, thank you for coming on the show today. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in and listening. I'm grateful for everybody that decides to sit down and share some time with us here on the Indian Science Show. And if you want to find us, you can download the podcast on all the main platforms, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, places like that. And you can find us on our website at www.wordpress. Oh, I always get this backwards. It's www.ndnscienceshow.com dot wordpress.com and we're also on facebook and instagram at indian science show thank you again for tuning in and we'll catch you on the next episode